1 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at the first four verses. And the title of our lesson today is called The Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. As I told you before last week, we are starting to build here as I enter into the ministry as your leader, and we are going to start to build some foundations from the Word of God. And I will eventually get through this process and start a book study with you. But for the first few weeks, what I want to do is just start to build some of those really necessary foundations for our ministry going forward. And so we're going to start where you should start. We're going to start with the Lord Jesus Christ today. We're going to make sure that that cornerstone is firmly planted here at Crossroads Church. And I know it already has been. But I want to continue to build the right way. And so we're going to make sure that Jesus Christ is at front and center of everything we do today. And so that's the spirit of our lesson today as we talk about the Alpha and the Omega. We will get here to the text in a little bit. But did you ever have a day that you'll never forget? Consider that question. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. Maybe there's just a few days in your life that you say, I'll never forget that day. A lot of us remember those big events in history, right? Where you were when 9-11 happened. Or if you're a little bit older, the Kennedy assassination. Or even older, the Pearl Harbor attack. And Anyone remember the Titanic? <laughs> Let's just keep going back. But uh, there's sometimes that you have an event like that that's very personal to you. And so I'm going to share with you today a few days that I'm never going to forget. Okay? And um, a little bit of jokes. So just to warn you. These aren't, don't take these very serious, okay? Uh, the day that I got my driver's license is a day I'll never forget. You guys remember that day, the day you got your driver's license? That was, a, that was a monumental day for a teenager. That's the day I became my parents' personal DoorDash driver. And they realized I could go to the grocery store and get prescriptions and run errands for them. I'll never forget that day. Some days aren't that great that you have to remember, right? I realized, the day I realized I was losing my hair. That's the day I started working on growing a beard. I was eight years old at the time. How about this? The day I met my wife, Janine. The day I met Janine is a day I'll, I'll never forget because that's the day I started showering regularly. <laughs> Women are good for us, right, man? Little tongue-in-cheek there. How about the day I got engaged to Janine? That's another day I'll never forget. That's the day I told my mom. I called her on the phone and said, Mom, I won't be moving back home for the fourth time because I got engaged. Or the day that I moved back home for the fourth time with my wife. That actually happened. That's the day that my mom and wife started to lose their hair. Putting your mom and wife together long term, probably not a great idea. How about the day I heard we were having identical twin boys? Now, can you imagine what that day was like when I went to the doctor expecting to see a baby and there were two heads? And I, I know that seems obvious now, but when you're hearing that for the first time, that's a strange bit of news. You're honestly thinking... My baby has two heads. And I know that's very bizarre. But I remember the day we found out we were having identical twin boys because that's the day I realized I would never sleep again. And it's true. And it's also the day I realized that the kids can now outnumber us, three to two, and now it's seven going on eight to two, and that we were going to have to stay on our kids' good side. And we try as hard as we can. Here's the day I found out we were having our first daughter. Now, to, to a dad, that's a special moment when you find out you're having your first girl, because that's the day I started praying that she would look like her mom. And thankfully, she does. Little Adelaide is Janine's mini-me. I remember the day that I became a pastor. That was an important day, because that's the day I started to get a life insurance policy. As you know, <laughs> pastors sometimes have targets on their back, so I needed a life insurance policy. I remember the day that I learned we were moving to Littleton, New Hampshire. That's the day I googled the phrase, how do I defend myself against a moose attack? <laughs> I like making moose jokes because there's no moose around here. In fact, Roger said, I'm going to find some moose for you, Pastor Todd, and now I have to hold him to it because he says there are moose somewhere around here, and we're going to find him, Roger. We're going on a moose hunt. <laughs> of course, those are a little silly. I'm going to do a serious one that's going to lead us into our lesson today. I remember the day that I learned that Jesus is everything. Because that's the day that I began trying to give Jesus my everything. 
Maybe that day today is going to be your day, the first time you learn that. Or maybe it's going to be a reminder today. But either way, we're going to talk about Jesus today. We're going to talk about how important the Lord Jesus is to our lives, to our church. And I hope today would be an encouragement to your soul. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it your own copy of the Scriptures. But I'm going to use the screen to my advantage here. Uh, last week, I heard a couple comments that the, the font was hard to read. Because I guess there's some people in their hundreds, 130 years old here, and I said, no, I don't, I don't mean to offend anybody. So I'm going to make the screen nice and big, okay? So if it's too big, I apologize, but I wanted to make it nice and clear, so hopefully we got a little bit better, a little closer here today. But listen to the language of this scripture. And we're going to walk through this a little bit and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. But Hebrews opens right up. Now, if the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, it's not like his other epistles, because usually there's an introduction. I, Paul... Grace and peace from the Lord, right, right to you, Colossians or Corinthians. The writer of Hebrews gets right into it, and he says this. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. And he spoke to our fathers, the people of God, by the prophets. And that's exactly what happened. If you go back in the Old Testament... The Old Testament people did not have the copy of the scriptures that we do here today. We should be thankful to have the copy of the scriptures because this is God's word all compiled together for us and our advantage. But back in the day, if you wanted to hear from God, you had to hear from his prophets. And God thankfully spoke often from those prophets. It says in many times and in many different ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But if you wanted to hear from God, you had to listen to those prophets Listen to their message. Park yourself right at the feet of the prophets and say, tell me the word of the Lord. And for many years, that's how God spoke to his people. In fact, after the prophets passed away and before our Lord came, there was 400 years, they believe, of silence from God and man. God did not speak to his people for around 400 years. But as the writer goes on to say, but in these last days, and he's referring to now, he's referring to the day of the church. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son. Now, maybe that's just a factual thing that we're learning. Like last week, we learned that Pastor Mark was stepping down and Pastor Todd was stepping in. And maybe that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing, just telling us a fact. It used to be the prophets, and now it's his son. And there's been a changing of guard. But I don't think that's the point. And the reason I don't think that's the point is because you continue to read on and the writer of Hebrews is very clear to let us know how important this person is. For the next few verses, in fact, for the next several chapters, the writer of Hebrews is going to unlock the value and the beauty of this person. Therefore, he says, whom? And he's referring to Jesus, of course. He's going to say whom, and he's going to tell us some very important and profound things about this person that God now speaks to us through, this Jesus Christ. The first thing we learn is that he appointed Jesus, this Jesus, the Son of God, to be the heir of all things. And I want you to think about these phrases for a moment, okay? These are phrases we typically just roll past and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But think about that concept of being the heir of all things. Now, if you've ever been an heir and ever received an inheritance, you know what that's like. Okay, somebody passes away and your name is written on the will, and that stuff goes to you. Well, Jesus is the heir of all things, meaning he's the richest person that ever lived or ever will be. Jesus will get everything one day. Everything of value, everything of beauty, every of lasting Beauty and value will go to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. <laughs> now, that's an important phrase. We could stop right there and spend the rest of the time talking about how valuable Jesus is because he literally is going to get everything. But the writer also says this, and he kind of seems like he's going backwards chronologically. He says he's the heir of all things, but through whom Jesus, he also created the world. And here's where we start to unlock this concept of the Alpha and the Omega. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But the writer of Hebrews is helping us understand that Jesus is both the heir of everything to come, but he's also the creator of everything. Do you notice that? 
from beginning to end, Jesus is everything. And that's what he's trying to unlock here. He's the heir, he'll get everything, and he is the creator of everything. And now we're starting to understand a little bit of the beauty and value of this person that God speaks to us through, this Jesus that we all say we love and follow. But he's going to go on. And he says this now in verse 3, I believe this is, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, we have a sun that uh, warms up and gives light to our world. And I've been, I've heard, and I was told as a little kid, do not look directly at the sun. That's a bad idea. Has anyone ever tried that? You can only go maybe a second or two before you start to get blindness in your eyes. But to say that we don't see the sun is a ridiculous statement. Just because I don't look directly into the sun very often, I see the sun all the time. And so do you, because we see the glory of the sun. We see the rays of the sun. We see the radiance of the sun a lot of days. Maybe not here in this part of the world at this time of the year, but we do see sun a lot. The writer of Hebrews basically says, the radiance of God's glory. And you have to understand the glory of God is the most magnificent thing there ever was or ever will be. The glory of God is so powerful, so magnificent, that human man and woman cannot look at it directly or they die. In fact, if you remember back all the way in the New Testament, Moses was going to take a glimpse at the glory of God, and he had to tuck himself into the, the nooks and crannies of the cave and let the back of God's glory simply pass him. That's the only amount of glimpse he could get of the glory of God because it was so magnificent. Human beings could not look directly at it. But the writer of Hebrews says, see, I knew that was going to happen. I did something. I pulled the camera up. Didn't want to do that. The writer of Hebrews says he is the, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the part of God's glory that we can behold. We can look at the life and testimony and teachings of Jesus and we can see God's glory. But he's also the exact imprint of his nature. And my guess is why the writer is writing that part is so that we don't look at that first part and go, see, he's not really God. He's, he's the radiance, he's the sunlight, he's the rays that come from the glory of God, but he's not really God. He's, he's kind of like God. See, so you see how your mind could get there going, okay, he's the radiance of the glory of God, but he's not God. Well, by following that with these, this phrase right after that, he says he's the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint. I mean, if there was a fingerprint of God, Jesus would have that fingerprint. If there was a handprint, Jesus would have that handprint. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Now, they're not the same person. God the Father and Jesus the Son are two different beings. But as we'll learn and be reminded of today, they are the same. Jesus thinks the same way. Jesus acts the same way. Jesus loves the same things. Jesus fights for the same things. He dies because God said, I want to save the world. So we've learned one thing, two things, and now the third thing here in this beautiful verse. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, these, these phrases are so magnificent to behold. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, if you ever try to calculate the size of the universe, you will eventually go mad. It is so big. In fact, scientists believe they have a good understanding of a massive part of the universe. And they've, they've sent satellites out and pictures out and they've calculated and sat down and talked about it. And they have this understanding of how big the universe is. But every single scientist believes that there's a whole part of the universe that no one can ever see, that we haven't yet sent cameras to. So there's this massive part of the universe that we can see, and there's a massive part of the universe we cannot see. And guess what happens? Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the beauty. He's the value of God to our souls, to our lives. He's the part of us that connects us with God. Jesus Christ is the beauty and glory of God. He's also the exact imprint of God's nature. Now back in the day, if, if you've studied history at all, kings, when there were kings, they used to have this thing called a signet ring that they would wear. And on that signet ring would be the mark of the king. 
and he would wear that ring. And, and when he wanted to send a message to someone, he would take that signet ring and he'd put it into hot wax. And he put it on a little piece of document or a letter that he was going to send out. And so when the person knew they got that, they knew it came directly from the king because it had his exact imprint upon it. That's Jesus. The life, the testimony of Jesus is not a lesser version of God. It's not a different version of God. It's exactly what God wants us to know. It's exactly who God is. How Jesus operates, how Jesus lived, the things that Jesus valued are exactly what God values. Exactly. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now my twins especially love space. Everything is space right now. They're collecting books on space. They're talking about space. We got this nightlight that shows little planets and stars on the ceiling. They love that thing. They love thinking about space. So we're watching these videos, and my, my kids are homeschooled at the current moment, so we're watching these videos all about space. And I'm telling you guys, sometimes just go to YouTube and, and type in videos of space. Because it'll, you'll, you'll just awe at the fact of how magnificent and beautiful and put together it is. I mean, have you ever wondered how planets stay where they are? <laughs> how do they stay in the sky? How does the massive sun and the earth stay in the sky? Well, we just learned it in one phrase of one verse. Jesus upholds it by the word of his power. Are you starting to get the concept of how beautiful, how magnificent this person is? And as we're going to learn here and be reminded of here in a minute, Jesus is the very one that died for us. This Jesus. God himself, the exact imprint of God, the one who created the world, is the one who spilled his blood for us. Now in verse 4, the writer keeps going. He says, after making purification for sins. Which again, that, that phrase we roll over, it's so important. After what you just learned about Jesus Christ, it says, he's the one that made purification for your sins. I mean, when we're talking about size, which my twins love to do, how big is the universe, Daddy? How big is the sun, Daddy? How big are we in comparison to the universe, Daddy? And I'm trying to think about these things for the first time going, we're nothing in comparison to the sun. We're nothing in comparison to the Milky Way. We're nothing in comparison to the rest of the universe. And yet... This Jesus who upholds the entire universe by his word is the one who made purification for my sins and for your sins. This Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power died so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved. But after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name Jesus, he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Maybe you've heard the term right-hand man. You guys ever heard that term right-hand man? A right-hand man is someone that you are the most trusted person in your life, okay? God has a right-hand man. Literally. Jesus Christ is on God's right hand on his throne in heaven. And the writer says, after he made purification for sins, after he died and was buried and was alive again, he went to the throne of God and sat down. And that sitting down is symbolic of completed work and exaltation. He completed everything he needed to do for our redemption, for our salvation. And when he sat down, he sat down in the highest position imaginable at the right hand of the throne of God. He is God's right-hand man, so listening to Jesus is hearing from God himself. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know when we hear from Jesus, when we read his words, when we study his life, we are studying the very essence of God. And this Jesus is also the one who paid for our sins those sins that you've committed, those sins that I've committed, those secret thoughts we've had, those secret deeds we've committed. Jesus stood on the cross and paid for those sins so that you and I could be saved. And this is the very one who is the creator of everything, the heir of everything, and who sits down right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And that our mind is supposed to be elevating now to somewhere greater than we're just here at a church service singing a few worship songs. We're supposed to get to the point where we start to awe at the fact of how magnificent this really is, this truth. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys have ever been part of a Black Friday. Now, back in the day, I don't know if Black Friday is quite as bad as it was back when I was, uh, in my early 20s, I worked retail. Anyone work retail? 
see some retail people. Okay, we have a couple. Uh, I worked retail at two different retail places, one called Circuit City. Anybody remember that, Circuit City? Uh, it's a cool store. A uh, little funny story, which I'll share one day. I got hired at Circuit City in 2008 in the fall, and a month later they were closed. Anyone else worried right now? I'm teasing. But at Circuit City, they had this thing called commission. And so what you would do at Circuit City is you would, you would try your best to help people buy merchandise because that merchandise would eventually make its way back to your pocket. Well, at Black Friday, people would show up in line outside for two hours prior to when the store would open, maybe even longer than that. And we had these things called door busters. So when the doors would open up and the people would rush in, they would find whatever door busters those were and they'd basically shove their way around and throw elbows to get those door busters. And it was quite the sight to behold. I'm there in my early 20s going, I'm seeing 40, 50, 60, 70 year olds throw their weight around in an effort to get a TV. Because the TV was, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks cheaper than it normally was. I remember one DVD player, back when DVD players were big, um, we had this brand, um, it was kind of an off-brand, I, I can't even remember the name, but it was something like Skibitsky. And um, this is when I work at Best Buy. They worked, I worked at Best Buy and they were having this doorbuster of this DVD brand called Skavitsky. And I knew this thing was junk. But DVD players were about $200 back then. This is like right when they came out. And this Skavitsky was like $30. So when the doors busted open, we had a stack of these things right there on the floor. And people were like diving for these things. Like it was gold. And I know in the back of my mind, these things are junk. And in two weeks, all of these things are probably coming back here. Because they're all going to break. But I saw some things that day I wish I had never seen before in my life. I saw people losing all kinds of dignity in an effort to get a very, very cheap DVD player. But I'm going to say something that you're probably never going to hear from a pastor that's going to sound a little weird. I don't know if consumerism is all bad. Now, it does bring out a lot of bad things, does it not? Like, here's probably a picture of greed and selfishness that's probably going a little too far. But I want you to know about consumerism. The, the, the backbone of consumerism is basically drawing out the fact that people want the best. They want the best for themselves. They want the best for their loved ones. And you know you can kind of find that in Scripture? And I'm serious? When Jesus himself is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he starts talking about the value of the kingdom of heaven. And he gives this really small parable. It's the smallest parable in the entire word of God. It's one verse. But it holds such a mighty, profound message in this one verse about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, referring to the kingdom of heaven, says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now think about that for a moment, okay? Treasure hidden in a field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. But he's going to elaborate a little bit, okay? So he's going to paint a little bit of a hypothetical scenario. Which a man found... And covered up. Now, for a moment when I'm reading this parable, everything makes sense. The kingdom of heaven should be valuable, correct? It is valuable. That's obvious. And if a man found the kingdom of heaven, it would be a treasure, would it not? If anyone was able to find the value of heaven within a treasure, that would be an incredibly valuable treasure. The part that confuses me when I first read this is this part right here. Covered up. <laughs> you know what that? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Now, I'm just going to do this as, a, as an exercise. I want you to tell me why is the man covering up the treasure? Someone shout it out. Why would you cover up treasure that was so valuable? Okay, you guys all said it. To have it for myself so that no one else will find the treasure. Do you see how valuable the kingdom of heaven is? It's so valuable that you want to make sure it doesn't slip through your grasp. That's what Jesus is saying. And go back to this picture here. If you could look, some of these people have their death grip on these TVs, okay? This, this guy and this lady right here are like, no, I'm not losing that TV. This guy, he's already out the door. He's like, I'm out of here. I got my TV. In this parable, the person finds the kingdom of heaven. It's hypothetical. You can't find heaven hidden in a field. But it's a parable drawing out the value of the kingdom of heaven. A man finds treasure hidden in a field. And he finds this treasure and decides that he needs to cover up this treasure because he doesn't want to lose this treasure. And then he does something remarkable. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Now again, a very elementary question, why? 
Why would you sell everything you own in order to buy something? Has anyone ever done that? I've never done that. I've never heard of anyone else doing that. Selling everything they own in order to purchase one thing. But let's draw this out a little bit more. I want you to imagine this could actually happen, okay? Let's paint a th another hypothetical situation, okay? You want to build a house, just like we talked about last week. You want to build a house. You want to build it from scratch. You want to put your own you know, and work into that house. But before you buy a house, what do you need? You need a place to put it. You need land. You need a plot of land, right? So in this hypothetical scenario, let's say there was a plot of land available for you to build a house on. And land is expensive, is it not? So let's just say for a nice round number in our hypothetical situation, this plot of land cost $50,000. Now that's a good chunk of money, is it not? And you want to build a house, but $50,000 is a lot of money. I mean, that's probably for a lot of people loan material. I'm going to have to go to a bank and get a loan and, and be able to pay that amount of money. But let's say in this situation, you're out there on this plot of land. You get out of your car. You're walking around this plot of land. And you're imagining your house on this plot of land. And you're just poking around. You're digging around. And for some weird reason, you have a shovel or a pickaxe. <laughs> I don't know why. But... <laughs> You happen to find something that day. And it's oil. Now, you guys remember that show from the, help me out here, 40s, 50s, the Beverly Hillbillies? When was it from? Beverly Hills. 60s. 60s? They're called the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, that's literally the concept of that show, right? They strike oil and they become rich, and uh, they were kind of hillbilly people, and it was kind of a funny show. But imagine this happens. You're, you're on the plot of land, you're digging around, and you strike oil. Oil comes forth from the land. And, and suddenly you realize that this plot of land has oil sitting underneath it. What just happened to that plot of land? It increased in value, it increased in value exponentially. Now, what is it worth? Is that enough? I, I mean, do you see what's happening here? I... Oil is one of the most expensive things. I mean, anyone trying to heat their house with oil? We are. I got a bill the other day for four grand. I'm just kidding. Everybody's like, it wasn't that bad. But it was pretty close. Or ever try to fill up your car with gasoline, which comes from oil, right? You're starting to get the picture here. If you found oil in, your, in a field that you don't own that costs $50,000, what do you think you'd do? You would probably do very, very similar to what this man does here. In your joy, you would go and sell everything you own and maybe get all your friends and family members to do the same, saying, I just found oil in a field, and the field costs $50,000, and if we buy the field, the oil is ours. Jesus himself says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man who discovers treasure hidden in a field, and then his joy after covering it up, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And I'm going to ask you today, how does one receive the kingdom of God? Isn't it through a person? Isn't it through one single person? Isn't it by faith in Jesus alone? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. But indirectly, if you have the eyes to see it, he's speaking about himself. He's saying, this is the value that I have to your soul. If you find me, you find the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, if you find Jesus, you have found treasure hidden in a field. And therefore, because he is everything and he can offer you everything, he is worthy of everything. That's what Jesus is drawing out with this parable. And in Revelation 22, Jesus says this about himself. And Jesus was not coy about who he was. He was not trying to hide it. It was not like treasure hidden in the field. Jesus came to boldly proclaim that he was the ticket to God and the key to the kingdom of heaven. And so he says in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm everything. Do you guys remember the um, Amazon logo? Have you guys ever seen the Amazon logo? I know you all have. It's something like this. I'm not going to draw. You guys know I'm bad at drawing, but I can do this. It's something like this. You ever wonder what the Amazon logo means? 
Do you see it there as I draw it? What are they trying to draw out there? A to Z. Meaning, what are they basically saying? We have everything. We have everything. Everything your mind can comprehend. Come search for it. We have it. We'll send it to your house in two days. Now, they don't really have everything, right? I mean, you can't get plutonium. I hope. You can't get a child from Amazon, I hope. Um, but you can get a lot of things. But what Amazon is basically saying is we have everything. Come find it. Come buy it. Get it from us. Jesus has basically just told us that. I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. Now, the Alpha and the Omega is basically the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying, I'm that, and I'm everything. I'm everything in the middle. I'm everything at the beginning. I'm everything at the end. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the beginning and the end. And I like illustrations. And this is why I'm doing this, because I think illustrations help us understand the things of Christ. Um, we have some mountain climbers and hikers in this audience, do we not? Anyone like to hike? Yeah, we've got to, I know you do, Sue. we got some hikers. Anyone ever scaled kind of a, a pretty steep precipice, mountain? Sue again? Okay, Sue's... I didn't mean to focus all my attention on you, Sue, but now we have. Um, what if we were... I've heard from a couple people we should go hiking together, and I want to. I want to be, I want to be an avid hiker um, to some degree <laughs> without, without getting those injuries that I can't return from. Um, but what if we were going to get really, really ambitious, Okay. And you wanted to not only hike up to Mount Washington, the biggest mountain around here, but you wanted to go much, much bigger. Mount Washington has helped me out 6,000-something feet. This is not a picture of Mount Washington. What is this a picture of? This is Mount Everest. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet. That is more than four times the size of Mount Washington. Now, say we're going to get really adventurous, and we wanted to climb Mount Everest. Now, obviously, that's never going to happen, okay? But it does happen for many people. Many people want this to be the, the glory of their life. They got to the top of Mount Everest because they can't think of anything in their minds that would be greater glory than to scale the highest mountain in the world. So here what we have is a picture of base camp at Mount Everest. And this is where people go that want to climb Mount Everest, you know, and they they raise a lot of money. It takes a lot of money to climb Mount Everest. It takes around $60,000 to climb Mount Everest, to get everything in order. It takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of crazy. Um, <laughs> it takes a lot of training, a lot of tools. It takes a lot of time to climb Mount Everest, and it's very, very dangerous. But I've done a little study on Mount Everest, and I've realized that nobody gets to base camp as the end goal. Nobody comes to base camp and says, there, I did it. I climbed Mount Everest. I did exactly what I've been wanting to do my entire life. No, that's not the point of Everest, is it? Where's the point? It's at the summit. It's 29,000 feet in the air. And it takes days and days and days to scale that high of a mountain. But you know what's interesting about Mount Everest? Is you can't get here without first going here. But the glory is not a base camp. The glory is at the top of Mount Everest. Now, what I've seen in the course of my ministry for the last 15 years is a sad situation. And I think it's probably been happening longer than I've been in ministry. But we've somehow allowed the devil to confuse us. That somehow, by getting saved in the Christian life, we're done. We come to Jesus Christ for cleansing, for forgiveness of our sins. And we think we're done. We think the entire point of the Christian life is to get saved. And I'm not judging anyone if you're thinking that here today because I did it for 20 years. For 20 years, I thought the entire point of Christianity was to get saved. But if that were the case, guys, I would have left this earth at age five. Because I trusted in Jesus Christ as a five-year-old boy. And if that was the absolute peak and summit of Christianity, there is no reason for me to stay on this earth any longer, is there? But if you read the Bible, if you ever read through the Bible, you will notice that there are more layers to this Christianity than some would assume. There's a summit. There's a peak. 
And no one can get to that peak without first trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But if you read the Bible, no one has ever been content getting to base camp. We'll use the Apostle Paul as an example. The Apostle Paul lived most of his life as a persecutor of the church of Jesus. And then once he got saved, you would imagine that Paul had reached his summit going, Paul, you came out of such a horrible, godless lifestyle and now you're a Christian. You're done. What a magnificent story. Put the period right there. Happy ever after. But what did Paul do for the rest of his life? He scaled a magnificent mountain to try to reach the summit of Christ-likeness because he knew that Christ-likeness is everything. To be like Christ, to think like Christ, to act like Christ is to be like God. And Paul climbed and climbed and climbed. And it was treacherous and dangerous and many people trying to pull him off that mountain. But Paul kept ascending up that mountain because he knew that Christ-likeness was everything. Now what I want you to notice from this is there's a lot more to flesh out there, but I want you to notice this. Can anyone get to base camp in Christianity without Jesus? Can anyone come to the Father? Can anyone get saved? Can anyone have their sins forgiven without Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely, wholeheartedly, no. Nobody can get saved without Jesus Christ. But can anyone be what God wants us to be from this life without Christ either? Can anyone become like God without Jesus? And the, absolute is absolute, and the answer is absolutely wholeheartedly no. And do you see what the writer is pointing out? Do you see what Jesus himself is pointing out? I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Whether you start to climb, whether you're on the mountain to some degree, whether you're striving to reach the peak of the mountain, you've been following Christ all your life, it's Jesus from A to Z. It's following Jesus. It's listening to Jesus. It's worshiping Jesus. It's learning from Jesus. And so Jesus says this amazing phrase when he's talking to the Pharisees once. The Pharisees are in this sort of debate with Jesus. Because they're basically telling Jesus, we don't need you, Jesus. We have Abraham. Abraham's our father. We came from Abraham. We listened to Abraham. Abraham is the one that instructs us. Abraham is our model. You're saying we need you. We don't need you. We have Abraham. We come from Abraham. And Jesus says this remarkable phrase, which is one of the most remarkable phrases anyone's ever uttered. He tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Now, that would be strange enough for Jesus to say before Abraham was, I was. Because he would basically be saying, I'm really, really, really old. I'm so old, I'm older than Abraham. You have no idea how old I am. But he didn't say that phrase. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Do you notice what he's saying there? I am eternal. I'm eternal. I always was, I always am, and I always will be. Before Abraham was even thought of, before Abraham was ever conceived, before anyone ever heard the name Abraham, before anyone knew about his life or his testimony, before Abraham was, I am. That's why you need me. Abraham's not high enough. Abraham's not great enough. Abraham didn't die for your sins. Abraham did not create you. Abraham is not the heir of all things. Abraham is not seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Before Abraham was, I am. And that's a remarkable thing to say. And for those who hate Jesus, that must have been the most bothersome thing you could possibly hear. But for those of us who love Jesus, just awe at that phrase. And then Jesus backed it up with several teachings from his scripture. He had these seven I am statements. You remember some of these? Jesus said this once in John 6, I'm the bread of life. You don't just need food. That's good for your physical body, but you need spiritual nourishment. You find that in me, in Christ. You nourish yourself by listening to me, by eating of me, by, by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. These are phrases that actually Jesus came out of his mouth, and he's not talking anything physical. It's much deeper than that. But he says, I'm the bread of life. If you find any nourishment and strength in the spiritual life, it's because of Jesus. But I'm not just the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. You live in a dark, dark place. And you need navigation. You need clarity. You need truth. I am the light of the world. I am. If you find any light, you find it in me. 
any understanding, any truth, anything about God, you find it at Jesus Christ. But I'm not just the bread of life. I'm not just the light of the world. I'm also the door for the sheep. And a few weeks ago, we talked about being sheep, how all Christians, all people who follow Jesus Christ are like sheep. Jesus says, I'm the door of those sheep. I'm the one that allows those sheep safe pasture. I'm the one that allows those sheep to have entrance into the Father. I'm the one that allows those sheep to have a nice grassy pasture to eat from. I'm the door for those sheep, but I'm not just the door. I'm also the good shepherd. I'm the one taking care of those sheep. I'm the one watching over the sheep. I'm the one protecting those sheep. I'm the one that if the wolf comes after the sheep, I defend them from the wolf. But I'm not just the bread of life. I'm not just the light of the world. I'm not just the door of the sheep. I'm not just the good shepherd. I'm also the resurrection and the life. If any of you want life beyond the grave, if any of you want hope beyond death, you find it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead three days after he dies, and then he says to each of us, I am your resurrection and your life. If you want resurrection, if you want eternal life, you find it in me. But I'm also the way, the truth, and the life. Do you notice what he's saying there? No matter what angle you look at it from, I'm everything. I'm everything. I'm the way to God. I'm the truth about God, and I'm the life with God. I'm everything. But I'm not just the bread. I'm not just the light. I'm not just the door. I'm not just the good shepherd. I'm not just the resurrection. I'm not just the way, the truth, and the life. I'm also the true vine. And that's really important because we're all branches. Branches. That's what John 15 says about people. It's not very flattering, is it, to find out you're a branch? But if you've ever seen a branch that's not connected to a tree or a vine, it doesn't have a lot of purpose, does it? You can maybe pick it up and throw it to your dog, and your dog might return it to you. Or you can throw it in the fire and use it for warmth. But there's not a lot of purpose to a dead, dry branch, is there? Unless that branch is connected to a tree or to a vine, and all of a sudden it can bear fruit. Suddenly that branch has glorious, beautiful, delicious fruit hanging off of it. And it's all because of where it's connected. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. If you want to bear fruit for God, you bear it by be becoming next to me. <laughs> Throw a little funny couple screens up here. But I, I want, I want you all to understand this today. I think what we have today is a problem. I think there's a bunch of people calling themselves Christians today who are splashing around in the deep, in the shallow end, excuse me. Going to church occasionally, reading their Bible occasionally singing songs when, you know, when they're here at church service and talking about Christ when the perfect opportunity arises. And, and they've been Christians for a long, long time. And I, I'm going to tell you again, I was one of these people, 20-year Christian. I'm splashing around in the shallow end. When if you understand anything about Christ, there's a whole wide, deep ocean out there called Christ and Christ-likeness. And it's all in here. And if we will spend our lives looking for it and finding it, like the person finding treasure in a field, we will find some of the most magnificent truths you could ever find. The more you dive into Christ, the more beauty, the more value, the more riches you find. But it's also like scaling Mount Everest. It's also like going from the base camp to 29,000 feet in the sky. The more you climb, the more you realize there is more to climb. The more ocean you would discover and search out, the more you realize there's so much more out there that you couldn't possibly explore except for an eternal life of doing so. And I'm going to share with you a verse before we close today that actually changed my life. See, because I was a 20-year Christian. I was 26 at this time. And for 21 years, I had professed to be a Christian and I was splashing around in the shallow pool with my floaties on. Because I thought the whole point was getting saved. I really did. I thought the whole point of becoming a Christian was to get saved, have my sins forgiven, and then just know that for the rest of my life. And then go back to my life. I'm saved. I got my hand stamped. I can come and go as I please in the kingdom of heaven. Now the rest of the life is mine. And that's when Paul says this in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. He says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, which is really important, you got to come to base camp first. You can't scale Mount Everest until you come to base camp. You cannot become 
a follower of Jesus until you believe in Jesus. But as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You notice that? For some reason, I had never seen that for 20 years. I had never seen the point of following Jesus after I trusted in Jesus. But Paul says, you not only need to be rooted in him, but you need to be built up in him as well. You need to be established in the faith. You need to be abounding in thanksgiving. And this phrase right here changed my life because this is when I started to realize for the first time that the same thing I did when I trusted in Christ is the same thing I should be doing now, only deeper and greater and further and more committed. Because I had stopped. I had come to Jesus, I had had my sins forgiven, and I stopped all progression. And that's when Paul and Jesus himself said, Todd, get up. This isn't the point. Salvation is not the point. Salvation is a means to get to the point, because the point is glorifying God. The point is to become like your Savior. The point is to, be look, to look like him and think like him and to act like him and to scale this mountain for the rest of your life. And you've wasted 20 years splashing around in the kiddie pool. Now it's time to scale that mountain. Get up that mountain. And by God's grace, we will. Because it's not just about having roots, is it? No one plants a tree and the tree roots itself and someone goes, there, perfect. The tree has been rooted. No, they wait for the tree to grow so that the tree can bear fruit. The tree can produce something. And that's exactly what's happening here in Christianity. We need to be rooted in Christ because he's the Alpha. But he's also the Omega. Sorry for the messy handwriting there. And Jesus is telling us to that today. Follow me. Listen to me. Line up behind me. Obey me. Do what I say. If I say go, go. If I say stop, stop. If I say do this, do this. If I say don't do this, don't do this. Because we're following Christ up the mountain. I'm going to really quickly race through a few things that I think as Crossroads Church are going to be really important as we go forward. I came up with this through prayer and meditation. I came up with seven things that I believe as the pastor of Crossroads Church I want us to be about. Now, I will eventually hand this out to the entire church, okay, if I believe God has stamped this as far as what he wants. But, but I want you to see a theme. I came up with these a week or two ago, and then I came up with this lesson this past week. And I want you to notice something. This came right from the Holy Spirit, right from the Word of God. These are the seven things I want Crossroads Church to be about. And I want you to notice the theme. Number one is we exist to know the Lord Jesus and be known by him. Number two, we exist to declare and proclaim his love and salvation to the world. Number three, we exist to obey his will as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Number four, we exist to let Jesus have his way in our ministry in all matters. Number five, we exist to become more like him in thought, speech, and action. Number six, we exist to unify as one body to encourage, strengthen, equip each other to serve the Lord Jesus with the gifts and talents he has given us. And number seven, we, endure, we exist to endure following him until the moment he returns to this earth to gather his church to himself for all eternity. Do you notice a pattern? The Alpha and the Omega, that's the point of our church. And I want everyone to know that. I don't want to be coy about that. I don't want to tuck it away. I want everyone to know it. I want to sing it from the mountaintops. Crossroads Church is about Jesus from beginning to end. See, they agree. I'll take that as an amen. And I just want you to know that that's where we're going. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm everything. And if you find Jesus, you find everything. Jesus once gave you everything, and now Jesus is asking for something shocking from all of us. He's asking for everything. Maybe you guys remember the song, Jesus Paid It All. Do you guys remember that song? Beautiful, beautiful lyrics. Does anyone remember the next phrase? Jesus paid it all.
Why would it make sense for us to give Jesus everything? Right? Think about that. Why would I give anyone everything? Why would I sell everything that I have to buy one thing? Why would anyone do that? I'll give them a percentage. Sure, 10% makes sense. But Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But once you understand that he is everything and that he gave everything, it starts to make sense that Jesus deserves everything. So Jesus told his first disciples this, follow me. It's so simple that a child can understand it, but it's so deep, it'll take the rest of our lives to dive into that ocean, to climb that mountain, to understand what that actually looks like, to do everything that he did, to listen to every word that he said, to take the exact footprints that he took for the rest of our life so that one day we can be just like our Alpha and Omega. Whoever has my commandments is the one who keeps them. Excuse me, is, and keeps them is the one who loves me. I don't know where you are on the spectrum, but I believe most people in this room probably have received Christ. And I'm not going to judge you if you think that's kind of where the period is, because I did for 20 years. But I want to erase that today, because the Apostle Paul says, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and abounding in thanksgiving. And that right there is going to take the rest of our life, and that's going to take a heavy, heavy commitment to get up that mountain. And I pray that you understand that today, that our Lord is everything. He's the creator of everything. He's the heir of everything. And he's asking for something from you today. And he's asking for something big. And if you understand his beauty and his value, you'll understand that when he says, give me everything, you'll say, absolutely. It's the only thing that makes sense. Can we bow in prayer? Father, I, I don't know how well we did at establishing this point today, but I thank you for Jesus if we could simply take 40 minutes and, and expound on the beauty and value of Jesus, and I believe it's time well spent. And even though it's the tip of the iceberg, Father, and there's so much more to explore and to talk about and to think about, I thank you for what you've shown us today, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and therefore he deserves everything. And I pray for those in this room who, who might be at base camp, who might be splashing around in the kiddie pool, who might not even know Jesus first firsthand, I pray for all of us, Father, that we'd understand how deep and valuable he is and to go further and greater and deeper so that we can love him more because of his great love for us. Thank you for Crossroads Church. Thank you for where you're taking us. We give you all honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together one more time.